wanting to clap or a little bit timid, don't wait for me. I'm one of those guys that can't rub my tummy and pat my head at the same time. I can't sing and clap at the same time. So just ignore the fact I'm not clapping. Go ahead and uh, do it if you want to clap before the Lord. John 8. I want to read John 8, beginning at verse 48. Hear the word of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Now do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets who are, de are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Amen. Father, we thank you for the self-control, the power that Jesus had, even when his deity was veiled and hidden from view to the eyes of these people. And Father, as we come and we meditate on the sufficiencies that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I pray that our hearts would be stirred up with praise and adoration, with faith in you, encouragement. And Father, where rebuke is needed, where we fearfully cling to other things that we think uh, we need to cling to instead of the Lord. I pray that you would bring that rebuke, that you would draw our fingers out from that, and they would, they would clasp unto the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I think most of you are familiar with Patricia Hurst, who was kidnapped by the Symbionese uh, Liberation Army. Uh, she was in the news quite a bit when I was uh, growing up. But her... Her uh, grandfather was very famous in having amassed uh, quite a, uh, a massive um, uh, uh, fortune. He used a lot of his fortune to um, collect a rather impressive art collection. And uh, he had uh, one day read about some pieces of art that he just thought he had to have in his art collection. And so he sent his agent abroad to find these pieces of art, and it took him weeks. And he hunted and hunted, and finally he discovered that uh, Mr. Hurst had already purchased it years before, and it was in his storehouse. Now, I've done that on occasion. I've gone out and bought a book, um, and it was on a good sale. I bought it, and I come home, and I find I have a copy, sometimes two copies <laughs> of the books. Ah, well, another book to give away. And uh, sometimes we are forgetful as well in the spiritual realm. And all across this nation, we have Christians who 
are searching for spiritual resources that they already have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It never dawns on them that uh, they already have all things that pertain to life and godliness in their storehouse. They already have it. You know, it never dawns on them that Jesus Christ has already uh, so fully equipped them that as uh, Timothy, uh, Paul says to Timothy, that we can be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, in John MacArthur's excellent book, Our Sufficiency in Christ, John MacArthur shows how the church has forgotten the superabounding grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, has gone in a quest for something more to fill the perceived gap. He talks about Christ plus philosophy, Christ plus psychology, Christ plus legalism, Christ plus all kinds of things. We're sending our agents out there. We're looking for this and for that. We're trying to fill a, a void. Now, I've preached on the sufficiency of the Word, but the sufficiency of Christ really is all comprehensive. It covers absolutely everything. And one of the beautiful ways in which the Gospel of John portrays the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, as, as well as pointing to His deity, because this is really a book that points uh, to His deity, is the little phrase, I am. And that phrase in the Greek is, ego, eimi. Uh, John uses the phrase, I am, 23 times in the Gospel, and it absolutely infuriated the Jews. And uh, they pick up stones to stone him. Already in chapter 5, they're stoning him, you know, when he, he uh, uses this phrase. And so there's something that is behind this phrase that does not immediately appear to our eyes. And I think it's from the Hebrew or the Aramaic uh, that uh, the Greek is uh, translating. Uh, Jesus probably spoke in Hebrew. Uh, some people say he spoke in Aramaic, but either way, there is something there that the Jews immediately recognized he was equating himself with God just with the use of that phrase, I am. And so I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3, and I'll give you a little bit of background material that would have been in the minds of the Jews and uh, why it was that they were very upset with him for using uh, this phrase. Exodus 3, verses 13 through... 15. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The Lord, excuse me, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Now, two things I want to point out. If you look at the word Lord, you will see that it's in all capital letters. Anytime in the New King James you see word Lord in all capital letters, it's a reference to Jehovah or Yahweh, if you want to pronounce it the modern way. And um, so he says, his name is I Am. And his name is Jehovah. Well, which is it? Actually, they are uh, both from the same root. I am is the verbal form of the uh, noun, the name form, Jehovah. And uh, they both come from the, the same root. And the Old Testament used the phrase, I am of Jehovah, in exactly the same way that the Gospel of John uses the term, I am, for Jesus Christ. And it was to show God's people that God was self-existent. He didn't need them, but they needed Him. And everything that they needed, they could find in Him. For example, when 
uh, Abraham was terribly fearful of what was going to happen, God says, I am your shield. Another way of saying that is Jehovah is your shield. Jehovah, your shield. I am your shield. Um, when Israel doubted that they could gain the victory, God said, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. In other words, don't worry about it. I'm in control of it. I can handle this for the remnant of Israel. When Moses tries to get out of his job, you know, and he's fearful, God says to him, tell him I am has sent me to you. That was as much for Israel as it was for Moses' sake that he said that. Uh, I, I am your sufficiency. Moses complained about stuttering, and immediately after this I am passage, God says, what are you complaining about stuttering for you? I'm the one who made your mouth. He says, who has made the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Is it not I, Jehovah? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. And so what he was telling Moses is, I want you to put your confidence in the great I am, not in yourself. You don't need to have confidence in yourself. If you have confidence in me, you'll be confident to do whatever it is that I call you to do. And so when we find ourselves in bondage to sin, we need to go to the one who says, I am the Redeemer. Uh, when we find ourselves sorrowing, you know, and feeling like we're going under the waves of those sorrows, we need to go to the one who says, I am the rock on which you can stand. I am the joy of your salvation. And so when the Jews are trying to stone Jesus, they are rejecting the I am and they're embracing an I am not. They're rejecting the power of God and they're embracing instead just a form, a form of religion. And um, even though none of you would ever dream of um, stoning Jesus, you reject Christ's claim to be the great I am just as surely when you deny the sufficiency of Christ for your particular set of difficulties. Just as surely, you, you, you reject his sufficiency. Uh, when you say, I can't do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what you're saying is, because of your fears or whatever the thing might be, you're saying, Christ is not sufficient for me. He is not the great I am. That's exactly what is going on. Let me tell you a little story about the Collier brothers. It's a true story. Brothers came from a very wealthy family and uh, had plenty of money to set them up for the rest of their lives. They lived in a mansion in Harlem, New York. And in 1909, their parents got a divorce, and uh, they lived with their mother in the, in the mansion there. It was on 128th Street and 5th Avenue, which now is kind of a bad section of town, but back then it was a ritzy section of town. And as they got older, Harlem began to decay and to get more and more crime, and they holed up in their, in their mansion in fact, because of fear of crime, they started boarding up all of the windows and boarding up the doors and setting booby traps all throughout the house in case anybody came in to steal any of the junk that they'd collected. And it, believe me, even though they had tons of stuff they'd collected, most of it was just junk. And um, they made the newspapers when they failed to pay their monthly mortgage. And so the police came up to seize the property and and uh, they had a crew there that was working on the lawn, and they, they were, you know, Homer and Langley were screaming out of the windows at them to get off the property and everything, and the police tried to break down the door, but it's all kinds of stuff, the stuff behind it, they can't get through, and finally Langley comes out, and he says, okay, we'll pay for it, and he pays off the entire mortgage, you know, he didn't, he, he had plenty of money, so he wrote a check for the entire mortgage, but later on, um, they failed to pay their utilities and eventually had the water and the gas shut up. Plenty of money, 
but they never used it. Uh, March 21, 1947, the police received an anonymous tip that a man had died inside of the boarded-up house, and so the police try to break in through the front door, and they can't get in. And so they try the windows. They can't get in through any of the windows. They put a ladder up under the top story, and they try to break through that window, and there's so much junk up there. They're hauling junk all day long and lowering it by a rope onto the ground. They finally get enough junk out that they can step through the door, I mean through the window into the room. And there they saw Homer Collier propped up in his bed with a uh, magazine, his 27-year-old copy of the Jewish Morning Journal, even though he had been blind for years. He's propped up in bed there, dead. Uh, and so they, they start an excavation trying to dig out the rest and find out where Homer is. And for, actually, there's rumors that he ran away and one drowned man they thought he was. Three weeks they had people hauling stuff out of that place. And it ended up being over 140 tons of junk that they hauled out of there. You know, umbrellas and, and uh, old broken machinery and auto parts and... Uh, just about anything you could imagine, newspapers everywhere, just tons and tons and tons of newspapers uh, all over this place. And apparently Langley Collier, they finally found him near the end of the three weeks, not too far from Homer. He had been crawling through the tunnels of, of junk to bring some food to his brother, and he had tripped one of his booby traps, and the whole kitten caboodle came down and suffocated him, and so Homer uh, died of starvation there. So here's people have a huge inheritance... But they never use it. Instead, they're treasuring all of this junk. They, they couldn't even, they just had to haul it all off to the, the, the dumpster. It was, I mean, to the junkyard. It was absolutely useless. And here's the question that I have. If we are wealthy in Christ, why, why, why do we cling to the junk of this world? We're going to be contrasting the things that Christ provides for us with the junk that's out there. We're going to look at the IMs. And the first pile of junk that the spiritual colliers of today have been collecting have been authorities that are not the Word of God. For example, we've got Christians who um, will appeal to um, so-called revelation today that goes beyond the Scripture and contradicts the Bible uh, or it may, they, maybe they don't even claim for revelation, just guidance. Uh, I talked to one person who said that the Lord had guided him to divorce his wife and convince this other woman to divorce uh, her husband so that they could get married. And I told him, look, look at these scriptures. It is out of the will of the Lord. No, the Lord has guided me to do this. And I said, God does not give guidance contrary to his word. He does not contradict himself. But he said, well, it may not be God's perfect will, but it's, it's his um, permissive will, I think he said it was. And so that's one kind of alternative authority that people have in their lives. We have worldly authorities in the area of psychology and sociology and civics and many other areas. I've run across Christians who have said the Bible cannot speak to the political realm. Instead, we need to go to the authority of natural law. Okay, so these are all of the collier junk that people have been accumulating in their homes, and they have been failing to realize Jesus says that the Bible has authority for all of life. Absolutely everything. Everything that is taught at UNO, the Bible can undergird and contradict. It is an authority for life, and we need to take it into all of life. Now, we could show many places in, in, in the book of John where this is true, but I just want to look at one passage, and it's the first I am, John 4, verses 25 through 26. Now, this is the woman at the well who was speaking. You all know that story, but I want us to read 
Let's see, beginning at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now the Greek says, ego eimi, the one speaking to you. Ego eimi is the one speaking to you. The I am is the one speaking to you. So she says Messiah is going to reveal all things when he comes. And he says, well, the Messiah who reveals all things, I am. Now, since she was a Samaritan, she only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, which means whatever scripture she's appealing to has to come from there. And there's only one passage that she could appeal to. It's in your margin, and it's Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. And I want you to turn to that passage because I think it's a great answer to some of the collier junk that's been creeping into the church of Jesus Christ. A whole revelation debate. I think this is a good passage to start with. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now notice that the word prophet is capitalized there. And that's because uh, evangelicals all believe that this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Testament quotes it number of times quotes this passage and applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no question in my mind, this has a fulfillment in the first century. It has a fulfillment at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> okay, continuing to read, verse 16. According to all you desire to the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Now this indicates that in the time of Jesus, and you'll have to look at Acts 3 and other passages that quote this uh, as a reference to the New Testament, in the time of Jesus, there would continue to be prophets and they would have to be able to discern what is a true prophet and what is a false prophet. Now, there's three things I want to draw from this uh, passage. And the first one is that the Old Testament test of a prophet and the death penalty for false prophets continued to be valid and continued to exist in the time of the book of Acts when Acts 3 is being quoted. Okay? Acts 3 says this passage applies to New Testament times. Now, charismatics will say, no, 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 no. No, that's not, that's not true. In the Old Testament, they were inspired. They were inerrant. But in the New Testament, they can make mistakes. And um, uh, they learn, they grow in this ability to, to prophesy. And we can't make them the same. Yes, apostles were the same as the prophets, they say, but not the, not the, the prophets in the Old Testament. But the New Testament prophets, a totally different situation. And, um, you know, the best of prophets, they say, um, you know, are only correct maybe 60% of the time. Now, maybe some claim a higher percentage than that. I talked to one charismatic leader who was uh, wanting me to go to a conference that was put on by this one prophet. He says, this is one of the premier prophets. He's incredible. He says he has a 60% track record of being right. And I thought, you know, flipping a coin, <laughs> you know, is almost as good as 60%. It's a little bit more complicated than that because it's not just a yes or no thing. There's details and stuff like that that, 
that are for the future. But let me tell you something. Nostradamus was almost as good, and we have records of demonic psychics who are better than 60%. And what the New Testament says is not 60%. It says 100%. It says they have to listen to all that the prophet says. Okay? God is not going to say, oh, yeah, we can ignore 40% of what New Testament prophets say. No way. God says it's 100% standard. We need to listen to 100% of what the prophet and his prophets say. And it even quotes the death penalty in Acts uh, chapter 3. And so Deuteronomy 18 does not give any wiggle room whatsoever for prophets. Uh, By the way, some of these so-called prophets uh, today, some of them actually may be getting guidance from the Lord. I'm not going to question whether they get guidance, but guidance is a whole lot different than prophecy. And I think we need to distinguish those things. Guidance is not infallible. It's not inspired. Uh, You know, we could be all kinds of mistaken on that. So I'm not going to question whether God is speaking to them or not. What I am questioning is that they have prophecy uh, in in, uh, well, we'll look at that in a bit, where it talks about it passing away. Let's uh, look at verses 21 through 22. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Now, that all applies to the time of Jesus. Modern-day prophets are not prophets in the true sense of the word. And Isaiah 8 and Daniel 9, and there's some other passages, indicate that once 70 A.D. hits, once Israel is cast away, vision and prophet will be sealed up, or another translation is closed up, or another translation is finished, or actually another translation is ended. There will be no more prophets after 70 A.D., That's a clear-cut presentation of Isaiah 8 and Daniel 9. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't give guidance, but prophets are a special kind of revelation. It's inspired. It's infallible kind of revelation. And by the way, Ephesians says much the same thing. It says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, you don't lay a foundation all through the rest of the, the time that the house is being built. You start with the foundation, then once that's laid, the church is built on top of that. And so the, the prophecy was for the foundational period of the, of the church when it needed to receive uh, from the Lord uh, what would stand it in good stead for the rest of its history. And in Isaiah 8, it says that after that period of time, after 70 A.D., when Israel is cast away, if people seek for inspired, infallible kind of revelation and they get it, they're getting it from demons. It says, it cautions people who live after 70 A.D., and it says, to the law and to the prophets, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Okay, so this is the light we have uh, from the Lord. Now, that brings up an interesting question. Jesus didn't write a thing. He didn't write a word, except for when he scribbled in the dust, and then it got erased, right? He did not write a word, and Deuteronomy doesn't say that he would write a word. It says he would speak. It would be on his lips, on his, from his mouth, that uh, this would come. All Jesus did was, was speak, and so this brings up a second thing to notice. There are some ways in which Jesus would be like Moses, and there are some ways in which he would not be like Moses. He would be like Moses in that he was a man, and specifically from the tribe of Judah, he, uh, from Israel. He would be like Moses... Uh, in that 
uh, God would give direct, infallible revelation that he would speak through his mouth. But whereas Moses went ahead then and he wrote that down, Jesus is the only prophet who commissions other prophets to give his, his revelation, to give and communicate to the church the words uh, that he has uh, spoken. And so Jesus didn't write a word. He authorizes prophets to write in his name, and they dared not go beyond what he had given. Now, the third thing to notice is that verse 18 says, He shall speak to them all that I command him. All. Now, the Samaritan interpretation, which Jesus appears to agree with, the Samaritan interpretation of this is that when the Messiah came, he would give all revelation, the kit and caboodle. He would show us all things. Okay, so the whole kabonga, you know, all of the revelation is what this Messiah, this prophet would give. Now, with that as a background, let's go to the New Testament. Let's see what uh, it says about this revelation about Jesus. And I'm going to restrict myself to John, even though there are many other passages that speak of the Father revealing all things to Jesus, Jesus giving to the apostles all things. In fact, it uses a Greek word, parodosis, which is sometimes translated as a tradition or a body of truth, there were an all things and a body of truth that God gave to Jesus, Jesus gave to the apostles. Now, the apostles were trained for three years, and they had to have the Spirit to bring to remembrance all that Jesus had given. And, and the apostle Paul was trained for three years in Arabia, away from everybody else, all by himself, with the Lord, Galatians says, and he was called the last of the apostles. He was called an apostle born out of due time. Uh, and so an apostle ordinarily had to be uh, one who walked with Jesus and who was trained by Jesus. And so he had to have his own special training for three years in order to qualify uh, as an apostle. But anyway, we're going to just quickly look at John 3. Uh, a few passages in the Gospel of, of John that gives the same kind of language about the all things that Jesus gives. John 3, 31 through 35. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. No one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Okay, flip over to chapter 14. Chapter 14 and verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Okay, the apostles were simply taking truth that Christ had already been given. Look at chapter 16, 12 through 13. A little, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? because I go to my Father. That's not the right one. Oh, thank you. Twelve. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. 
He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Can you see how uh, the prophets, Mark, you know, uh, Peter, James, and John wrote scripture later. They were simply taking the body of truth that the Father had already given to the Son. They were communicating it to the church through scripture. They were his mouthpieces. Now look at chapter 15 and verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. And again, Jesus is the revealer of all things that could be revealed from the Father. He was the final revelation. His apostles, his prophets were the secretaries, as it were. And anything beyond the all things, beyond the paradises, beyond the body of truth, is something the church was not allowed to have. Now, there were, there were people who got insight into things that uh, the church was not allowed to have. And let me give you an example of that. That would be 2 Corinthians 12, talks about Paul's spirit leaving his body and being caught up into heaven, him hearing things he was not allowed to share. It says, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. He got the revelation. He was up there, but he says, you are not allowed to communicate that to the church. It is not lawful for a man to utter. And so I would say it is not lawful to have any more words than the words that the Father gave to the Son to communicate to the church. He is the final revelation. No more revelation beyond him. And once the first century prophets, who were his direct representatives, he was unique in, as a prophet in this, Direct representatives have given the all things entrusted. Isaiah 8, Daniel 9 say that prophecy and vision were sealed up. Now, the rest of the INs are fairly straightforward. We can whiz through those, uh, move fairly quickly. So I want you to look at uh, chapter 6 and verse 20 for the second IM. And actually, let's begin reading at, um, at verse 18. Chapter 6 and verse 18. <clears throat> they're out in the, in the sea by themselves. It says, Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, literally, it's just a sentence by himself, me, I am. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Now, only the great I am, only God could have accomplished that. He's the one who continues to raise storms in your life and to calm those storms. He continues to be the one who frustrates your rowing. You're rowing and rowing. You're just not getting anywhere with the things you're doing. And he continues to be the one who prospers your rowing in miraculous in miraculous ways. But it's only when we see Jesus as being in the storm that we can have the joy that these uh, apostles had in verse 21 where it says they willingly received him into the boat. Now, they weren't done with the storm yet, but now they're glad. You know, they willingly receive him into the into the into the boat. And I think of a story that my dad told, my mom reminded me of it this past week, of a group of Christians in Russia that were taken out onto the frozen lake. It was bitter cold in the wintertime. 
And the soldiers stripped them of their clothes, forced them out onto the lake, and told them that if they recanted their faith, that they could come and get their clothing and be warm. And they're out there singing praises to God and praying to the Lord. And finally, one of the young men just cannot take it any longer, and he comes back to get his clothes. And when he comes to the shoreline as an indication that he's recanted and he wants his clothing, one of the soldiers yells at him, You fool! Didn't you see the angels all around you? And that soldier took off his own clothes, and he went out there, and he joined the rest of the people to die in their place because he saw something this young man was blind to. He saw something that gave him a longing in his heart, and it was a longing that was sufficient that made him willing to die rather than to miss out on what he saw. He wanted it for himself. And when you're on the ice or when you're out in the storm, it's so easy for us to say, I need this security from the world. I need this or I need that, rather than to look to the Lord Jesus Christ for your warmth and comfort. And when we do that, we are as blind as that young man who came off of the ice or as blind and foolish as Langley and Homer Collier. Where do you go in the storms of life? Do you cling to the junk? Really, in terms of eternity, the things we cling to and think are so important to us are junk. Even our life, if we cling to that, is junk in comparison with eternity. Now, the third I am is repeated four times in the same chapter. I am the bread of life. Now, let's start with the context because he's already given them physical bread. He's fed them in verses 1 through 5. Uh, 5,000 fed with the... the, Uh, uh, five loaves and the two fish, and they are very, very impressed with what he has done. But rather than causing that to submit to Christ's agenda, what they do instead is they treat Jesus as being their entitlements program. They want Jesus to submit to their agenda. Look at verses 14 through 15. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So their their theology is right. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. I want you to notice those words. They were going to take him by force. They weren't submitting to Jesus and to his agenda. They want Jesus to submit to him. They want him to be, as I said, their entitlement program. And... uh, Uh, What Jesus is basically saying is, okay, Homer and Langley, uh, it's time for you to leave the house. I want you to start stopping clinging to all that junk, and I want you to be productive for my kingdom. I want you to serve me. And when they realize that Jesus wants them serving him rather than saying Jesus has to serve their purposes and their agendas, he's not fun anymore. And uh, Christ says, indicates that the disciples learned a lesson. But look at the crowds in verses 26 and 27. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Well, what's a sign for? A sign points to something, right? And so if you have a sign of Omaha, you don't park beside the sign, you go to Omaha. And Jesus is saying, you guys are parking beside the sign as if that's the be-all and the end-all. You're supposed to have that sign point to me. 
And they, weren't, they were failing to do that. And so he goes on, he says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Jesus had no intention of filling their little political agenda. And they begin to realize Jesus isn't fun anymore. In verse 61, they're complaining. And in verse 66, they're leaving him. It says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And unfortunately, that is what happens with many disciples when things get difficult today. They want the bread. They want a comfortable Christianity. But when Jesus starts calling the shots in their lives, they walk with him no more. Jesus says, look, I am the I am. I am Jehovah. I am the creator God. You are the ones who serve me. And yes, I will give you bread. Yes, I will fulfill all of the needs that you have. But it's on my terms, not on your terms. It's in serving me that you find your, your, your needs fulfilled. And I think it's so essential that we have higher goals than getting bread, whether that bread is money or whether that bread is physical food. Everything we do needs to be done for his, for his purposes. Look at verses 48 through 50. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. What happened to the Israelites uh, in the wilderness? God provided and he provided, but he says they died in unbelief. It did not profit them. What happened to Homer and Langley? They died with their lives being useless did not count for anything. And if you want your lives to count for time and for eternity, it's got to revolve around the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. And so when I say that he's the bread of life to fill every hunger, spiritual hunger that you have, I'm talking about a hunger that only the Holy Spirit can engender within you. And what happens very often is we've got this emptiness within we sense this hunger, but what do we do? We try to quench that hunger and that emptiness with excitement, entertainment, food, alcohol. Uh, one thing or another, we try to numb that sense. And you know what? What happened with Solomon is that he had all of those things. And he says he grew to hate life. He thought he was going to be able to fill that hunger, that emptiness. And he comes to the, near the end of his life and he says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the Lord. But he reminds us that if we have Christ, if we're looking at life not under the sun with a time-bounded perspective, but under heaven, he says there's a purpose for everything. And you can enjoy even the simplest things of life, your wife eating a sunset. All of those things can take on new meaning, but it's only as we come to it through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the disciples did. Jesus says, do you want to leave too? And they said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Uh, hardly an inspiring um, testimony to Christ. <laughs> They're saying, well, yeah, we want to leave, but where can we go, Lord? We don't have a choice. You're the only one that's got the words of life. They were admitting life is tough with the Lord Jesus Christ. They were in constant danger, but they were saying, you've given us a hunger that nothing but you and your words can satisfy. And if the only hunger you guys have is the garbage of this world, if you don't have a hunger for Christ, it's an indication you've not even been filled with the Spirit of God. You may not even possess the Spirit of God. God gives us a hunger, and that hunger can only be satisfied through Christ. Paul had learned in Christ to be hungry and to be filled. 
Food did not displace Christ. Everything he did revolved around Christ. Now, the fourth I am is given in chapter 8, where he calls himself the light of the world. Now, this is a wonderful, wonderful story of the woman caught in adultery and forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the context for his statement, I am the light of the world, was that he had just finished convicting the Pharisees of their sin and their hypocrisy, and he has just finished convicting the woman of her sin. Now, let's just take a look at the contrast there. Chapter 8, look at verse 9. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. Now, that's the first reaction. Uh, Jesus, who is the light of the world, he shines his spotlight on their lives so powerfully that they're convicted of their sin and of their hypocrisy. What do they do? They leave, they leave Jesus. Now, the other uh, contrast is in verses 10 and following. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are these accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. <clears throat> now here is the irony. We only lose that sense of condemnation of the law of God and of the light that He shines into our lives when we come to the light. That's the irony. It's only when we acknowledge, yes, Lord, you are right. And it hurts to admit it, but you're right, Lord. I am a sinner and I want to turn from that sin. That's the only time when we lose that sense of condemnation. So he no longer condemns her. Why? Because she's come to the light. And verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, the colliers turned off the, the utilities. They uh, avoided prying eyes. They thought they were safe in their boarded-up house, but they were miserable. And they were wretched, and they were blind. Wherever Christ shines his light, it has one of two effects. It either causes people to leave the light, you know, like animals slinking off into the darkness, or it causes people to come to the light, to hunger for that light. In either direction, it's uncomfortable. Light is always uncomfortable because it exposes our sin. And nowadays, there are many counterfeit lights that are junk. Uh, counterfeit lights like the self-esteem movement, you know, where you can work, you know, on the person's soul and that person doesn't feel uncomfortable at all. You know, the self-esteem movement would make the Pharisees feel comfortable with what they're doing. It would make this woman feel comfortable with what she is doing. I'm okay and you're okay. But it is the collier junk. It's stuff that Christians are accumulating in their homes, and it is not sufficient. And let me tell you something. Christ, over the years, has been shining in this congregation. And if you are darkness, if you're hypocrites like the Pharisees, what's going to happen is when you are convicted of sin you're going to rationalize. You're going to back off from that light. You're not going to want it to be exposed. And over time, your conscience is going to become harder and harder to the point where you're going to be unable to even sense the conviction. You're going to be like Homer Collier, propped up in bed, you know, with this, with this magazine in your hands, pretending to read, pretending to, to be a Christian and uh, not realizing that you are dead as a doornail. And so even though it's uncomfortable, you need to heed the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to the light and he heed him when he says, go and sin no more. The light's purpose is to make us holy. And if you are rationalizing with the sins that you are convicted of by the Spirit, you are on a dangerous road downhill. Okay, the fifth I am is in verse 18. Um... 
chapter 8, verse 18. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Now, why the need for that statement? Well, it's because these Pharisees and these people are demanding credentials from Jesus, human credentials. You know, who's approved of this? Uh, verse 13 shows that. In verse 19, they accuse him of being illegitimate. Uh, Where is your father is an Eastern way of saying you're illegitimate. You don't have a father. And they said that all the time out in Ethiopia. Uh, verse 25, who are you? They claim awesome credentials. Verse 33, they answered, we are Abraham's descendants. have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say? You will be made free. And Jesus in the next verses says, you're slaves of sin. And then they give more credentials in verse 39. And Jesus says, hey, your credentials are useless, meaningless, given your character. And then again, in verse 41, they imply that he's illegitimate. We are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus proceeds to say, you're of your father, the devil. And so the whole conflict here is a conflict of credentials, their credentials versus Christ's credentials. And it can be summed up very nicely in verses 13 through 18. Let me read those for you. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And Jesus, by using that ego a me phrase, indicates there can be no higher credential than the self-existent, self-authenticating I am. He cannot submit to their credentialing. Now, what difference would this make in our lives? Well, let me give you an example. It means that when the Bible comes under attack, you cannot prove the truth of the Bible through science and history or personal experience as if those credentials are higher than the Word of God. If they prove the Scripture, they're higher than the Word of God, right? No, Christ's witness is self-authenticating. It is higher. In fact, the Word is the judge of all other credentials. It cannot be credentialed by other things. You know, when somebody attacks Genesis 1 and says, oh, prove that from science. I'm not going to believe it unless you prove it from science. Well, number one, they're talking way out of the jurisdiction of science, which only deals with the present. You can look at fossils, but you can't know what happened to those fossils way back then. Uh, you can only deal with the present, but... The, the, the worldly authorities, uh, it is the worldly authorities that need credentialing by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the moment we try to prove the Scripture by the independent reasoning of man, we have made God lower than man's mind. He is the self-authenticating witness. Now, here's what Cornelius Van Til said on this subject. And this is for the academic ones. The rest of you can zone out for a sec here. Christianity does not thus need to take shelter under the roof of known facts. It rather offers itself as a roof to facts if they would be known. Christianity does not need to take shelter under the roof of a scientific method independent of itself. It rather offers itself as a roof to methods that would be scientific. The point is that the facts of experience must actually be interpreted in terms of Scripture if they are to be intelligible at all. To argue by presupposition is to indicate what are the epistemological and metaphysical principles that underlie and control one's method. 
But for the rest of us, Jesus' word is an authority over everything else. You don't prove the word. You start with the word and you prove everything else. Does that make sense? Otherwise, God and Christ are made subservient to man. And so it's, it's a beautiful passage dealing with apologetics. Apologetic method. Presuppositionalism, not evidentialism. Now, sixth, he is your only hope of salvation. Verse 24 says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. And literally, there's no he in there. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. People try to add all things on top of Christ for salvation. You know, it's Christ plus works. It's Christ plus church attendance. It's Christ plus mysticism. And he says, no, I am the only hope of your salvation. I am the only source of your salvation. The remainder of the crowd, they're trusting in works. They're trusting in their relationship to, to Abraham and their credentials. They take offense to him because only God can make this kind of a claim. And yet that's exactly what Acts 4.12 uh, says. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so he says, put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can save. Now chapter 8, verse 58 is especially clear, and that's the one that we started from. And this is the seventh I am. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, ego eimi. Now the Hebrew that this Greek almost certainly translated would be the same Hebrew that was in the passage in Exodus 3 that we looked at before uh, at the beginning of the sermon. And so verse 59 says, Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now, if they're trying to kill him, how does he pass right through the midst of them? It's because he's the I am. He, he controls everything. Uh, immediately after that passage in Exodus 4, it says, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, and the blind? Have I not, have not I the Lord? <laughs> he's the one who can make them not see. He's the one who can make them see. Now, this means that God does not need us. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need your praise. He doesn't need your service. Now, he gives you the privilege of serving, and what an awesome privilege it is to be useful in his kingdom and for God to make you need me and me need you and us to be interdependent. That's a wonderful thing, and for him to receive our praises. But don't ever think God needed our fellowship or God needed our service. That would be as stupid as saying that New York City needed the Collier house and needed the Collier junk. No. God does not need us, but he gives us the privilege of service for him. Now, in chapter 10 and verses 7 and 9, he calls himself the door of the cheap sheepfold. Not just any door, the door who is the I am. I am the door of the sheep. Now, shepherds used to just lie across the entryway to the corral so that no sheep could leave without him knowing it and no person could enter without them knowing it. And Jesus indicates that he is the only one through whom there can be salvation. He is the only door to heaven. No sheep can enter that sheepfold without his permission, and no intruder can enter in without his permission. And so when we speak of other, you know, faith-based programs, it's a phrase that keeps coming around. Don't use that phrase. That almost puts all other religions on inequality with Christianity. No, there is only one true faith, and it's Christianity. There is only one door. The ninth I am is I am the good shepherd. Now, in the Old Testament, who is the good shepherd in Psalm 23? It's Jehovah. Jehovah is the good shepherd. And so when Jesus takes that title to himself in chapter 10, verses 11 and 14, I am the good shepherd, again, it makes only one of two reactions. 
Some believe and others say he has a demon. They think he's crazy. And so that they cannot escape the conclusions of this, he says in verse 30, I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Who do you go to for your shepherding? Earlier on, Langley had been asked uh, by people how come he had collected so many tons and tons of newspapers in his house. And he said, well, my brother Homer has gone blind, but we're going to heal him. And when he gets his sight back, he's going to have a lot of news to catch up on. And so he had his recipe that he thought would cure him of his blindness. And it consisted of a steady diet of exactly 100 oranges per week, black bread and peanut butter. And that's all Homer uh, was allowed to eat for years. He was cooped up in that room there. And what Homer really needed is somebody who knew how to care for him, somebody who knew how to shepherd him. He didn't need this guy, this crackpot, uh, working on him. And yet how many people in our day and age go to substitute shepherds? They, you know, they, 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 they substitute the, 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 the peanut butter of psychology, you know, or the, the oranges of the self-esteem movement, and they prop a magazine in your hand, and they say, be healed, read. It'll, it'll come any time now. You keep working on it, it'll come. How many people do that? No, we need to, as shepherds, not be looking to the world for how we run the church. We're false shepherds if we do so. We work under the one over-shepherd, and we need to look to him for not only the goals of shepherding, but the means of shepherding, the methods of shepherding, the foundations of shepherding. It all must come from the Lord Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 25. He claims to have the power of life and death. I am the resurrection and the life. Moving on, chapter 13. Uh, we have another I am. Do you doubt your salvation? Then fix your eyes on Jesus, who was your substitute. Uh, rather than having the betrayer's heel lifted up against uh, his disciples when the, 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 the guards come to capture him, he, he says, I am. Let these others go. Uh, and he can't, comes as a substitute. I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. And right there, he was acting as a substitute. And you know, in the Old Testament, in Genesis 15, there was a beautiful prefigurement of this in Abraham's life where God tells him to cut all of these animals in half. And this was the way they made their covenants back in the old days. If you look in Jeremiah 34 sometime, you'll see an example where they cut the heifer in half and in this whole army marches between the parts of that heifer. And what they were declaring as they make covenant with God there is, if we break this covenant, may we be cut off from the land of the living just as this animal was cut in two. That's what they're saying. Now in Genesis 15, instead of making Abraham pass between these two pieces, God comes down in a theophany in the form of a burning furnace and he moves between those pieces uh, on the altar. And what God was saying is, if you break this covenant, if I break this covenant, may, this co may I be cut off from the land of the living. The great I am was making himself a substitute in the place of you and I. Wonderful, wonderful passage, which was a prefigurement. And there can be no substitute. Langley tried to protect Homer by making booby traps all over the house. And apparently on his last day, he was crawling through these tunnels and uh, bringing food to, to Homer. And he tripped one, suffocated, and they both perished. Okay, so his life didn't mean anything to Homer by giving it. But Christ, when he died, conquered death and thus became our life. And so the twelfth I am is given in chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Are you lost? I am the way. Um, 
Um, you know, you wonder what's going on, what is truth, what is not truth, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll cut straight to the chase. He is the truth. He is the standard of truth. He is the one who judges all truth claims. Uh, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, he is the very definition of living. Uh, you know, some people think they're really living it up when they get blasted on Friday night. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's ridiculous. That's the junk of Collier Home. I don't want you going that direction. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Finally, in chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Verse 5, he repeats it. I am the vine. And he makes clear every branch, that's a Christian, every branch in him must bear fruit. Otherwise, it's broken off as being a false, a false believer. Verse 2, he says, uh, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Uh, how do we bear fruit? I mean, he repeats that concept all through there. How do we bear fruit? Well, so it's as the sap goes through the branches that it bears fruit. And it's as the spirit of Christ flows through us that we have all of the resources that we need to bear fruit. And any time we look to the worldly resources, it's spiritual catastrophe, just like it was with Langley and Homer uh, Collier. <clears throat> Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Didn't say without me you can't do the big things. Without me you can't do some things. He says without me you can do nothing. But if God's grace is flowing through you, his spirit is in you, you can testify with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so where do you go for spiritual resources? May it be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for the reminders of these IMs in the Gospel of John. Father, may they be quickened to our hearts to a point where we cannot forget them, impress them upon our soul, O oh Father. May we not uh, uh, cling to the things of this world, but may we cling to the Lord Jesus Christ in Him only. In Christ's name, amen.